I think one of the things that technology has been so useful for the far right has been to do with the way that it's enabled them to really transnationalize as a movement, sharing space online, sharing ideas and co-radicalizing each other online from across the globe. Hi, I'm Anna Kranen. I'm a senior research analyst at Tech Against Terrorism, an organization that supports the global tech sector tackle terrorist and violent extremist use of the internet whilst respecting human rights. Welcome to another episode of our podcast. This week, we're exploring how far-right violent extremists and terrorists use the internet. I'm joined by Blythe Crawford, who's a research fellow at the International Centre for the Study of Radicalisation, where she specialises in far-right online social movements. Blythe is also a PhD candidate at King's College London, where she studies far-right radicalisation within online forums. Beatrice Buarque is also on the panel. She's a PhD candidate at the University of Manchester, investigating the legitimization of alt-right conspiracy theories. Beatrice is also the founder of the award-winning NGO Words Heal the World. And we'll get insight from Arthur Bradley, who will give us a perspective from the Tech Against Terrorism OZIN team. In today's episode, we consider the different platforms used by the violent far-right, how their use of the internet has evolved, and some of the challenges moderators and tech platforms face when it comes to monitoring and taking down violent far-right content online. We'll also discuss the role conspiracy theories and chance sites play in spreading this ideology. So who is the violent far-right? Blythe says, broadly speaking, it's anything at the extreme end of right-wing politics. There are a few definitions I think are really useful when we're talking about the far-right. The first is coming from Cass Mood which is just this idea that there's this nativist ideology. So the people who are seen to be kind of the original people belonging to the homeland are kind of those who have ownership over the land and should essentially be the only people there. Um, So the people are what make up the state and any foreigner is really seen as a threat to this kind of community. So the far right is essentially an umbrella definition. And within this, we have these two other camps. We have the radical right and the extreme right. So most broadly, the radical right is this aspect of the right wing, which is hostile to aspects of liberal democracy, but ultimately it believes that democracy is a good thing that should be maintained and uh, liberal elites are the ones that should be sort of overthrown. So there's kind of aspects of populism within this definition. So I think a good definition um, to go for to sort of talk about when we talk about these kind of distinctions between the radical and the extreme is um, Tor. Bjorgo and Jacob Ravendal, um, who talk about the radical right being very behind cultural nationalism. So this idea that outsiders are incompatible with people from the homeland in terms of their culture, and they can kind of take up space in the homeland as long as they're kind of culturally assimilating. Whereas when we look to the extreme right, there's a rejection of democracy in its very self. So it's not just the elites that are corrupt, it's democracy is kind of a failed system in and of itself and needs to be overthrown. And violence is really kind of legitimized as a way to overthrow this system and any threat to the in-group. Um, and rather than cultural nationalism, we see racial nationalism being sort of embraced at this level. And this is where white supremacy comes in, seeing white people as biologically superior to other races. And very often this is also where anti-Semitism comes in, where we're seeing sort of Jewish influence being kind of imagined to be in control of demographic shift and a threat to the white race. Importantly, these two kind of categories of the radical right and the extreme right are not perfect categories. There's kind of ebb and flow between the two. And this is why it's always so difficult to give kind of a brief definition of what the far right is, because there's so much shift between 
different players and different members of different groups kind of like to play with the boundary between the radical and the extreme. And so something that is kind of a useful that um, Bjorgo and Ravendell kind of point out as being useful to see as bridging this gap between the radical and the extreme is this concept of ethnic nationalism. So race isn't explicitly being kind of um, mobilized in ethnic nationalism. We're sort of thinking of people as kind of wanting to be ethnically diverse. And the way to protect this ethnic diversity is keeping people of different ethnic backgrounds separate. And so this is where we see kind of groups like the alt-right or identitarians come into play, which are essentially preaching from a gospel of in theory, separate but equal. But as I'm saying, there's a huge amount of ebb and flow between the radical and the extreme. We heard both mention the alt-right there. I'm going to let Beatrice explain what this largely online phenomenon is and some of the challenges it presents. The alt-right can be considered a far-right subculture in the sense that it displays its nativist and populist traits. It speaks to white Western people who believe that their identity is under attack by multicultural forces. However, it is a very special subculture because it is a creature of the internet, an amorphous political phenomenon that has acquired the ability to reproduce itself without the need of an unified political doctrine or a central of command. Differently from other far-right movement of groups, we don't see any kind of um, homogeneity in the outright. Even though there has been some attempts to associate it with certain actors, such as Richard Spencer, it is really a, a loosely a decentralized phenomenon. And that's why it is so difficult to challenge the ideologies that we find in the outright. I will give you an example. When we talk about threats perceived by white Western people, we may come across people who convey very like racist messages, but also homophobic messages. We may even find anti-Semitic messages. And all these individuals, although displaying to a certain extent different views, they share this common belief that their identity is under attack. And that is the reason why, in my research, I decided to investigate the outright as a multitude and focus on what is shared in common across different spaces. Because if the outright is a creature of the internet, then what gives shape to it is exactly what is shared in common. In the outright, different digital communities are united by discourses that communicate the common paranoid belief that white Western identity is under attack. The belief is often shared through conspiracy theories that simultaneously communicate the dread and also point out the source of the fear. That's interesting because the conspiracy theories commonly found in the outright, they may indicate different sources of the dread. They may point out different enemies, the immigrant, Muslims, Jews, even women. But they all converge towards this belief that they pose a real threat to white Western identity. In terms of challenges associated with the outright, I believe that the main challenges are really associated with its amorphous nature. Let's compare, for example, the outright with Daesh. Daesh is a jihadist terrorist group with a well-defined political doctrine and a center of command. Hence, it is somehow easy to identify and track its messages. We know 
when a message is coming from Daesh, also known as ISIS. When I was using Daesh as a case study in my masters, I could observe how its propaganda followed a certain script and format. With the alt-right, the situation is different. In the absence of a unified doctrine or a hierarchical structure, we have multiple actors spreading conspiracy theories that convey this belief that white Western identity is under attack. And when I'm to I talk about multiple actors here, I'm not solely talking about like teenagers or men who start disseminating, for example, memes, xenophobic memes on the internet. I am also talking about institutions, intellectuals, and journalists who have given traction to narratives such as that the white race has been exterminated, that Europeans have been replaced with immigrants, that Marxists control universities and also infiltrated the government to promote multiculturalism and political correctness. All these narratives, they have been used to advance this idea that white Western identity is under attack, and not rarely they are used as a justification for verbal and physical attacks. So the thing is, the outright it's it's amorphous, is heterogeneous. We don't have only the neo Nazis, skinheads, these very violent people involved in the dissemination of its narratives. We also have a very sophisticated articulations of these narratives. We don't have solely memes. Memes is a trait of the alt-right that has been largely studied. But we also have conspiracy theories really performed as truth within the alt-right. And this is really, really dangerous. So now we know what the violent far-right is more broadly. How exactly do they use the internet to spread their message? Arthur Bradley, an open source intelligence analyst at Tech Against Terrorism, says proponents of the ideology exploit a wider variety of platform types. So much of their online operations are focused on propaganda, radicalization, recruitment, and also intimidation. And with that, you know, it's social media platforms, messaging apps, websites, video sharing platforms, audio streaming services, and that kind of thing. Most of the far right have an ideological opposition to big platforms like Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. They definitely still use them regardless of that. But these days, they mostly congregate for external messaging on alternative platforms or alt platforms with terms of service that emphasize freedom of speech uh, or user privacy. But on the on the less visible side, you know, they're, they're also more operational use cases. So talking about internal communication uh, and fundraising. And, you know, from, from these public-facing face, spaces, they also offer routes into more private spaces uh, for internal communication. So this takes place mostly on end-to-end -end encrypted messaging apps and email services, also fundraising using fintech services, cryptocurrencies, and kind of crowdfunding platforms as well. And on that point, there's also a lot of exploitation of e-commerce sites um, for merchandise and literature. So, you know, T-shirts, hoodies, flags, badges, and books, all of those kind of things. You know, the far right are, are very tech savvy. So emerging tech is also used extensively. Um, you know, decentralized web blockchain based platforms, um, which they generally perceive as presenting greater chances of being able to operate more freely without censorship um, than centralized platforms. Um, so they particularly use this kind of technology for, for social media purposes and also file sharing. In terms of the dark web, you know, contrary to popular belief, the exploitation of the dark web by 
terrorist and violent extremists is actually minimal compared to their use of, of the surface web and the deep web. But there are dark websites that are operated by the extreme far right. Most often these act as backups to websites that are also operating on the surface web um, and that can be prone to takedowns. And I guess on the point of websites, you know, also obviously posing a threat to infrastructure providers, so traditional websites on, on, on the kind of domain name system. And kind of linked to that is also platform creation. Uh, so the operation of, of platforms uh, that are run by extremists themselves. Obviously, websites are not new um, in terms of, of far right use of the internet. But right now, I think they're probably an overlooked issue. Tech Against Terrorism recently released a report into the threat of these websites, highlighting that a lack of action against these sites risks undermining content moderation efforts elsewhere due to their prevalence as well as the vast amount of propaganda content stored there. If you want to find out more about the issue, you can find the report on our website, techagainstterrorism.org. So according to Blythe, one of the things that makes the violent far-right unique in terms of their use of the internet is their constant ability to adapt to new technologies and platforms. They've been sort of quite consistently the first movement to kind of view new technology that might have some uses for them and then kind of capitalise on that quite quickly. I think one of the things that sort of technology has been so useful for the far-right has been to do with the way that it's enabled them to really transnationalise as a movement Um, Historically, the far right has really operated in terms of a leaderless resistance model. So this idea that less than functioning as a kind of unique, very bounded group, although there are groups that are very important in the far right landscape, they generally tend to um, organise more as loose networks of individuals that are kind of linked in terms of a shared culture and to some extent overlapping ideologies. And the internet has kind of been indispensable in allowing this to continue to be a valid tactic for the far right. So we see kind of disparate groups and users from all across the globe, essentially, um, sharing space online, sharing ideas and kind of co-radicalizing each other online from across the globe. And I think accelerationism is particularly important and when we're talking about this sort of transnational network. Um, So we saw kind of with the the Christchurch shooting and Brenton Tarrant, the um, shooter, branding himself very consciously as an accelerationist. His use of 8chan um, was really key in kind of enabling um, further attacks to kind of use his attack as a kind of a copycat model. And we saw from his initial attack in New Zealand, we saw attacks coming up in the US, in Norway, in Germany. And a lot of this was really enabled by online networks and kind of a transnational spread of far-right actors and with shared culture, some extent shared ideology and shared aesthetics. Um, I think another thing about the, the far right online and their use of tech is that they've really honed their use of kind of humour as a strategy. So this isn't really something that we see so much in sort of the Salafi jihadist side of things. We see kind of far right producing propaganda that's at times not explicitly kind of racist, anti-Semitic, misogynistic or whatever. It's kind of masking its darker side with the use of like memes or kind of softening the use with a joke right and so this becomes more easy to kind of disseminate into mainstream platforms and kind of red pill people who are not so used to this more extreme kind of rhetoric and more than just kind of red pilling other people within the own collective itself it's it sort of works to kind of bond users together and um, kind of dehumanize the outgroup and kind of desensitize um, users to extreme concepts or extreme violence being targeted at minority groups I think also the far right has just 
largely because of its kind of embrace of technology has become very adept or increasingly adept at sort of engineering its own alternative ecosystems and alternative sort of influence networks to coin um, Becca Lewis's phrase. So they're kind of creating like their own platforms where they can be quite free from moderation if they're being sort of booted off like Facebook or Instagram, where they did previously have a very big presence and and are still present to some extent. They're quite good at kind of creating their own platforms where they can operate pretty much independently from moderation to some extent. Yeah, I think that's kind of the last issue that I want to talk about was like for the far right and moderation is that often because largely it's largely white terrorism, I think they do kind of get a free pass to some extent in terms of moderation. We see platforms quite consistently struggle to moderate white supremacy or, or um, far right terrorism because it's oftentimes difficult to identify, oftentimes ideologically a little bit incoherent. And we do sort of see it getting a little bit of a free pass sometimes on these platforms. And that has really only strengthen the far right's kind of online presence. Blythe argues that the constantly evolving nature of far right content across online spaces is one of the reasons it's so difficult to moderate. So I think that one of the um, things with the far right that we're really seeing now is this kind of move into ideological incoherence. You know, the far right has never been this one kind of easily bounded, easily definable group with one clear ideology. But we're seeing that really devolve even more into the far right merging with kind of ideologies that we're seeing traditionally in the Salafi jihadist space, kind of sharing um, materials and resources with the Salafi jihadi sphere and kind of becoming more difficult to easily define as kind of clearly white supremacist or clearly far right. So this kind of move into incoherence, I think, is something that's really, really worth paying attention to. Um, We're also seeing a trend at the moment um, that my colleague Hannah Rose has kind of talked about specifically with this move into youth on youth radicalization. The far right has always been really, really keen on kind of targeting young people. And we've seen national action sort of really branding themselves as a youth movement um, since the very start of their organization. But now we're kind of seeing young people not just be consumers and certainly not just being groomed into far right um, extremism or terrorism. We're also seeing them be really active in creating propaganda and disseminating propaganda and being kind of incredibly active agents in their own radicalization pathways and even recruiting other young people. I think kind of famously we saw um, Foyer Creek being tied to the leadership of a 13-year-old boy, you know, and we're seeing this as a trend of kind of young teenagers attempting or planning to commit terrorist attacks on behalf of these kind of accelerationist networks linked to white supremacism and the far right. So I think that that's a huge trend that we really need to pay attention to. And that's, of course, it's completely tied to the online sphere, that whole development. Um, In terms of particular platforms that we're looking at, I think we really cannot be like talking about the far right right now without touching on Trump, because he has had such a huge influence in the far right, particularly, you know, in the US and the kind of broader Western sphere. And he's really had, uh, or his broader influences had kind of an influence on the different platforms that we're seeing um, kind of emerging. But we've also seen kind of platforms like Telegram being essentially the hub of far-right terrorism and extremist content online. Telegram is kind of, a lot of kind of users use it as if it's this be-all and end-all of encryption, which it, it really isn't. It's nowhere near as encrypted as most kind of groups that are using it think it is. But it has this kind of veil of security and it's incredibly lax in its moderation. So a lot of far-right extremist groups are kind of flocking there as this sort of safe haven. And something about Telegram as well that we're seeing is that um, it's so easy to kind of share content between different groups on Telegram. So you can very easily kind of snowball 
through kind of different groups and movements just by clicking on links that different groups are sharing. So it's very easy to kind of construct this, you know, alternative influence network um, that's really been um, kind of constructed on Telegram in these different kind of ideologies and different kind of extremist movements that are all linked together there. And this is sort of part of this broader trend with alt tech that the far right is really capitalizing upon. We have sort of alternative platforms, so like BitChute being an alternative to YouTube. We have Gab um, also being an alternative to Twitter being used by the far right. So we're seeing the far right kind of stray away from mainstream platforms, as has been the trend for some time, into these spaces where they're really not moderated to anywhere near the same degree. One feature that runs through much of this far-right content is conspiracy theories. The spread of conspiracies and disinformation is nothing new, but we've certainly seen an increase since the start of the COVID pandemic. This also ties into a decline in the number of people trusting mainstream media in recent years, leading many to search for alternative sources of news. With the internet at our fingertips, these false narratives can spread quickly and easily. But how do they work? Beatrice explains. Conspiracy theories, they are, overall, they are very important to populist practices because they tend to point out who is the enemy. In this sense, we can say that they operate as a discursive tool to construct the antagonism us versus them. They show what is the source of the dread, who is posing a threat to us, to our supposedly homogeneous group. Blythe says conspiracy theories often start with an idea or theory that's easy to get on board with. What makes conspiracy theories so kind of pervasive online is not even necessarily anything to do with kind of the online sphere. It's more so just the fact that conspiracy theories are so kind of easy to pick up on. You know, they very often kind of come from this kernel of truth or something that feels like it should be right or feels familiar um, and are really just a very simple frame with which to make sense of incredibly complex dynamics. So rather than kind of wrapping your head around hugely tangled and difficult to understand concepts, conspiracy theories are right there to kind of introduce a worldview of good versus evil. And they really simplify these really difficult um, concepts. And that's what makes them so kind of mentally appealing to a lot of people. Um, But in terms of kind of the online sphere, um, and they have been so, so influential in far-right thought and are essentially just kind of a backbone of the far-right at this point, as they are with a lot of other extremist movements. That's that's not unique to the far-right. But with the far-right kind of online sphere, it does tend to be a very kind of gradual process of red-pilling that we see kind of people adopt these conspiracy theories, initially just sort of starting with one idea that, as I say, kind of feels like it could be true or feels somewhat familiar and doesn't take that much investment to kind of get behind because it feels sort of intuitive. So we saw that with kind of the QAnon spread and how QAnon developed from these kind of niche online spaces like 4chan, 8chan, um, and then spread into kind of parenting and wellness communities on more mainstream spaces like Facebook. Um, And this was largely because it it kind of mobilized this idea of children being targeted by elites or by these cabals. And so a very familiar idea that was kind of becoming very um, pervasive or, or very common in these kind of parenting and wellness communities was this idea that young children, particularly girls, are being targeted by society. And that obviously feels true because, you, you know, we have kind of this climate where women and girls are kind of targeted by sort of advertising at a very young age. And so to make that leap into something sinister feels somewhat intuitive to a lot of people who are kind of used to kind of thinking this way. Um, so we start with this kind of idea that feels very intuitive and then 
this really kind of snowballs within kind of online echo chambers. Not only do you have an idea that feels like there's could be some truth behind it, but you also have this community where you're just getting unanimous support. So everybody is essentially behind these conspiracy theories and there's not a lot of room for dissenting voices. Um, and so these ideas become more easy to swallow when you have a lot of social support. And it's not just kind of online relationships. You're also seeing these people pick up specific bits of media that are coming from either conspiracy sources or are just have been kind of vetted by these people to be sort of in line with their worldview. So you're consuming just media that is really already confirming your bias. And so from that point, from this one sort of idea that maybe feels like it has a kernel of truth, you're moving quite easily into kind of darker ideas that are a little bit more difficult to swallow. But this kind of difficulty is kind of buffered away with this social support and this continued media ecosystem that you're existing in. Again, a point like anything that is counter to this worldview or that might sort of question this worldview is kind of just seen to be more support for it because you're kind of operating oftentimes in this idea that there's kind of a pervasive influence of cultural Marxism so that media is kind of controlled by elites or people who are very against the populist base of people who are believing this conspiracy theory. So any fact checking is sort of seen to be already inherently corrupt and kind of controlled by them. So it becomes very difficult to even get dissenting voices to have kind of any power um, with conspiracy theories. And this is kind of how people move along this kind of pipeline from, yeah, this one small idea and then moving into more extreme ideas, again, onto more kind of extreme platforms. So we, we saw kind of QAnon move from Facebook wellness and Instagram wellness communities into um, Telegram, where kind of people who were already quite ideologically motivated, um, often even openly Nazi spaces were thinking, okay, cool, we have this influx of QAnon followers, let's jump on them and kind of bring them into our worldview and radicalize them even further. So yeah, I think that's kind of how conspiracy theories work. I think it's important to note that rarely, if ever, are you going to see a conspiracy theory start with somebody openly claiming kind of Jewish interference or Jewish influence. These kind of stages, they come deeper down the conspiracy rabbit hole or the well that people are kind of jumping into. And yeah, you're just kind of peeling back layers of the orange into further and further extremism. But how can we attempt to counter the threat of these conspiracies online? Beatrice believes education is key. I firmly believe that we need more holistic approach to tackle violent extremism, to tackle extremism and terrorism. When it comes specifically to online extremist narratives and especially conspiracy theories, I think there is no other way but investing in digital literacy. We really need to invest in these programs to talk to students, not only at universities, but also in schools. And we need to develop these programs using active learning methodologies in the sense that I don't find it very effective to go to a school to facilitate a workshop and saying goodbye. From my own experience with undergraduate students, because in addition to be a researcher, I also founded an NGO to empower young people to challenge hate speech. I noticed that what is very effective is when we give students the opportunity to reflect on what is going on and express their own ideas to tackle it, to develop their own strategies, because Students, young people, they use, they use different platforms. They are much more in tune with recent technological advances than me and you, for example. 
So we really need to give them the opportunity to use these skills, use their knowledge to challenge this, to reflect on what's going on. I think that, yes, it is important to monitor, uh, to identify terrorist groups, to identify extremist groups. It is important to also block uh, harmful content on the internet and also delete, but it's clearly not enough. Like Maura and Ryan from last week, Beatrice is calling for improving digital literacy to counter these extremist narratives online. When we talk about the violent far-right use of the internet and the way in which it's evolved, it's also worth mentioning Chan sites. Chan sites are anonymous online forums where users might discuss anything from cooking to video games. But as Blythe explains, there are several boards which specifically focus on violent far-right ideas. Chan sites have been really important in far-right extremism, largely um, because they've been tied not only to just promoting general extremist ideas, but they've also been tied to kind of a spree of violent accelerationist attacks in 2019, starting with the Christchurch shooting and then also being tied to attacks and live streams in the US, Norway and Germany. So they've really become a very important part of the kind of far right online ecosystem. So Chan sites are quite unique as platforms used by the far right. There was a huge following on or a huge user base on 8chan, specifically the poll or politically incorrect board where um, Tarrant and two other attackers in the US posted to before their attacks. And 8chan having kind of evolved or evolved as a popular space online from the Gamergate controversy of 4chan in 2013, 2014 and onwards, 8chan was kind of recognised as very much a home for kind of relatively dedicated kind of online extremists who were quite clearly ideologically motivated. Another kind of interesting dynamic with trans sites is that they're simultaneously kind of very separate from the rest of the internet by choice in that they really want to differentiate themselves from sort of mainstream internet for sure um, and are somewhat kind of hostile of other platforms but also they simultaneously have a massive influence on the rest of the internet in general and sort of the far right online presence. So there's sort of like an in-joke that um, if you see a meme somewhere on the internet, it will probably have started on 4chan. And by the time that you're even seeing it and thinking it's funny, like everybody, the, de- the joke is going to be dead um, to everybody on 4chan because it's been around for so long there. Um, and that's true for just general kind of internet culture and sort of far right culture. Let's hear from Arthur again about some of the challenges when it comes to tackling the threats of violent far right groups online. There are a lot of challenges, but I think to summarise, it's really complex both for tech companies and governments to stay on top of this issue. Again, as Blythe was saying, the far right is not like a singular concept. It's plural. It's hugely diverse in terms of the range of actors and ideologies that are kind of included within this umbrella category. And all of these operate using different terminology. They use different symbols. And really, it requires a specialist understanding of these movements and significant resources to moderate their content effectively and proportionately. I think also it's worth saying that the violent far right are very good at towing the line of the rule of law and also platforms terms of service. So they're very good at presenting themselves as something that they're not. They present their ideas in a a way that really is in line with the platform on which they're operating. So often you'll see, you know, particularly on larger platforms, their ideas can be presented in a kind of sanitized way or, you know, avoiding incriminating language or keywords. They're also very good at hiding their ideology or hateful message behind humor. So using memes and that kind of thing. It's also kind of fairly common for far-right influencers to 
to present themselves as journalists or kind of push mis or disinformation in that way. This includes false information, but it can also include selective sharing of, of legitimate news that, and they just aggregate it in a way that correlates uh, and kind of reinforces their worldview. And then also for the alt-right, um, you know, often their ideas are kind of framed in a pseudo-intellectual way, and that can make the underlying extremist message quite difficult to identify. And how can governments and tech companies do better to moderate this threat? So the legal classification of a lot of these kind of groups and networks can be quite blurry in a lot of jurisdictions. There's a real lack of designation of violent far-right groups globally, nowhere near as many as, as there are for Islamists, for example. Obviously, groups, as Bythe was saying as well, are less central to the online far-right ecosystem as they are for other forms of terrorism. And we're often dealing uh, with networks of actors. So the designation of groups will only go so far in, in mitigating this. And it's also difficult for tech companies to keep up with the constantly shifting names uh, of these entities. That said, you know, groups can be influential in these networks and the content produced by those groups and individuals is often kind of repeatedly circulated. So designations should cover a wider range of groups and, and governments should also provide more clarity on, on what kind of content is illegal. This will help tech companies to prioritize content that's produced by the most dangerous groups and entities uh, and also to help them uh, implement proportionate and effective uh, responses in terms of content moderation. The process should be expedited as well, uh, you know, while still respecting fundamental freedoms. You know, quite often the designations of, of extreme right wing groups uh, can come several years after they're formed. So, you know, the UK designated Atom Waffen Division uh, six years after it was created. And in this time, there were several murders in the US uh, that were linked to the group. This should also relate to content produced by lone actor terrorists and violent extremist ideologues. So talking about manif manifestos and other ideological documents and copies of attack live streams, for example. I should also probably say that although designations can come late, designating a group in, in terms of the content moderation effects of that is definitely still worth it. You know, just because an entity doesn't exist anymore or an individual is no longer alive, for example, um, it's still helpful in the online space. It helps provide tech platforms with with clear guidance around what to do with re-uploads of historical content because it is constantly recirculating. I think the second point is is really, you know, from the perspective of, of Tech Against Terrorism, we're a public-private partnership that helps among lots of other things, coordinate communication between a lot of the key stakeholders uh, in this industry. And a lot of the work that we do is, is on kind of raising awareness of the trends and key issues and sharing these with platforms, governments and other key stakeholders in this space. I think that's really important. You know, we're talking about how complicated this can be. Um, so, you know, Tech Against Terrorism is a good example of that, as is the Accelerationism Research Consortium. And then I think in terms of kind of the general public and uh, and also research is a key way, um, you know, that we can help to to improve the the response to this is is just simply through user reporting. So whether you're a normal user or a researcher, if you come across this kind of content, just report it to the platform, you know, and I think that goes a long way, particularly when we're talking about private groups uh, that might not be so easily accessed by content moderation teams. As Arthur explains, the violent far-right's use of the internet continues to evolve as we see adversarial shifts, making it difficult for those moderating this content to keep up. With the adversarial shifts, we mean the response by terrorists and violent extremists when we try and counter their use of the internet, meaning they migrate elsewhere and start using the internet in different but equally worrisome ways. So one of the key trends of the last few years has been, uh, you know, the kind of violent far-right to alt-tech platforms. We're in a position now where far-right groups operate 
across all platforms, regardless of their size or their terms of service, but they're generally more concentrated uh, and operate more freely on smaller alternative platforms. These are usually the ones that either lack the willingness or capacity to moderate the content. Many of these alternative platforms uh, get a bad rep in the media, but in our experience of working with a really diverse range of platforms, we find that the majority of these are cooperative and are keen to stem the spread of terrorist and violent extremist content. And, you know, I think looking forward as as these alt tech platforms continue to make improvements to their, their moderation, essentially the migration is just con- going to continue kind of sliding down the hill. More alternatives will inevitably emerge uh, and the violent far right will migrate again. This might seem futile and their kind of core supporters will follow them, but it generally, uh, you know, this kind of migration does disrupt their ability to reach a widened audience and recruit. And it's essentially about making it as difficult as possible for these actors to operate online. I think the second thing also is, is platform creation. Um, so really, the, you know, the trend of platform creation by far-right extremists, this includes video sharing platforms, forums, you know, social media platforms uh, and websites. Uh, I think this is likely to become even more of an issue um, as they try to kind of get more control of the online spaces that they're operating in. You know, even small content moderation app, uh, actions by alternative platforms can and have caused far-right migrations elsewhere. Uh, you know, this can be on ideological grounds. And they essentially apply a generous definition to what constitutes free speech. So in some instances, they can be put off uh, and kind of move on voluntarily. So I think this means we're likely to increasingly face questions around the threshold for infrastructure level action against these kind of websites or platforms. So, you know, there have been some, you know, reported in the media instances of this kind of thing happening. Cloudflare took action against uh, Daily Stormer uh, in 2017 uh, and 8chan, as Blythe said, in, in 2019. Um, and then also, obviously, AWS suspended services to Parler in, in January 2021. And, you know, we at Tech Against Terrorism routinely facilitate the removal of terrorist-run websites. But I think, you know, with this, they're going to be increasingly creating their own platforms and it's really challenging to kind of work out where the line is between uh, an alternative platform that's not removing the content and a platform that's actually operated by terrorists or extremists themselves. So I think that's become more of an issue. A huge thanks to Arthur Bradley for sharing his insight with us and to our guests Beatrice Buarque and Blythe Crawford for their input in today's episode. To find out more about Tech Against Terrorism and our work, visit techagainstterrorism.org or follow us on Twitter at Tech versus Terrorism, where you can find resources on today's topic. I'm Anna Krane. This is the Tech Against Terrorism podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week for another episode. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.